Are you familiar with the term computational action or want to learn more about designing exploratory professional development experiences? Or how about learning how to listen and empathize with students or applying SEL with teachers instead of just students or the future of teaching and learning? Or maybe you want to learn more about the problems with external influences on CS and education, as well as many other topics. My name is Jared O'Leary, and I've had experience working with every single grade kindergarten through doctoral students. And I can say with confidence that today's conversation with Josh Sheldon is a wonderful conversation that I think you will enjoy. You can find links to other podcasts that are relevant to this particular episode, as well as some of the other things we talk about in our conversation. And all of that can be found at jaredoleary.com or by simply clicking the link in the app that you're listening to this on. I'm Josh Sheldon. I am a computer science educator working in the area of broadening participation, um, increasing representation and equity in computer science education. Specifically, I work at the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT, where we strive to help anyone who facilitates learning or teaches someone other people to become better at that teaching and facilitating of learning. Can you tell me the story of how you got into computer science education? Sure. It's a bit of a winding road. I definitely didn't follow a linear path to get here. I have been sort of interested in computing and in technology for as long as I can remember. Started programming in about second grade with a, well, I think in first grade, I learned logo at school. And then in second grade, we got our first actual computer, personal computer in the house, which was an Atari 1600 or Atari 800, I believe. And I learned basic sort of by typing in programs from the back of magazines, <laughs> which was yeah. a rem remarkably bad learning experience, but <laughs> we programmed some it was empowering because we programmed some neat games. I just didn't learn very much from it. Beyond that, I've been mostly self-taught within computing. Looking back on it now from the lens I carry, I'd say I had a lot of privilege that both of my parents are highly educated. They saw computers, personal computing coming and, you know, had the wherewithal and the both financially and sort of intellectually to know that this was going to be a thing that was valuable to anyone and made that happen in our house and encouraged me and programmed with me. So that was mm. great. I've been an educator and I've, you know, I'm a lifelong learner, learner myself. I believe very, very strongly in the power of education in learning for everyone and that education is a social justice issue that we need to close the opportunity gap and build a um, equitable system in which anyone who wants to and you know essentially everyone is afforded the opportunity to get an education in the areas that are of interest to them and in some areas that are important to our society. So I've been working primarily in STEM education for the early part of my career. I, developed, I taught for two years and got a degree in educational technology where I did some programming, but not actually teaching others to program or teaching computer science. Then ended up at MIT in a lab that does games and simulations for education. It's the Scheller Teacher Education Program led by Professor Eric Klopfer, where I was hired to work on a project that does did outdoor augmented reality. So this was in 2008 or so, and we were building a system that allowed people to program outdoor augmented reality games, think Pokemon Go, yeah. by themselves using our tools. And, you know, Pokemon Go came online in, what, 2016 or so. So we were pretty well ahead of the curve. It's pretty cool looking back to think about that. 
Yeah. And so that was sort of my first introduction to computer science education in that we were building a system that allowed people to program. So we were building a layer of abstraction on top of other programming languages that let people program logic into games. I then also picked up a project helping people learn complex systems in biology using the star logo programming environment which has a rich history that it's a descendant of the original logo pretty direct descendant which we may talk about later but is one of the you know maybe the first educational programming language. And then I moved, got even more serious about computer science education and became the primary part of my job when I worked on the App Inventor team at MIT. And did many things there, thought a lot about computational thinking, thought about and published on both computational thinking, but also computational action, which was an idea that with Mike Tissenbaum, we coined that term, which is not brand new concepts, but it's a new articulation of things that we've known and sort of a mashup of things that in a novel way that have been bumping around in the field of computer science education for a while. So what is it? I'm not familiar with the, the term. Computational action, the gist of it is that students shouldn't be learning programming for the sense of sake of programming, that we want to engage students in their learning. We want to build their conception of themselves as people who can engage in the business of computing, of computer science. And one way to do that that we posit is a you know strong engaging factor is getting them to work on real projects, real world. So it draws from project-based learning and that we don't necessarily even accept at the sort of introductory level, specify what tools they have to use. We more support them in picking up the tools and the concepts they need to complete the project that they co-designed or designed for themselves to do. Okay. It ha draws some pieces from service learning in that projects are often somehow pro-social and for the benefit of their you know, school or other communities, which is known to be important in building equity that traditionally underrepresented groups, whether it be people of color or young women, tend, we know, engage more and participate more when they're doing projects and work that is beneficial to their communities, hmm. as opposed to just learning a programming language in the abstract. What about beneficial to the individual? So like self-expression, et cetera? There's a lot of value there. That's not necessarily what we set forth in the idea of computational action, but mm -hmm. it's a very good point that self-expression and creativity are, you know, very meaningful to students. I do think that there's a shade there that could be like a shade of meaning that could be drawn there that I think there's something very important about impact with other people. Self-expression can certainly engage with other people. You can make art that is important to you that is moving to other people, but you can also have self-expression for your own sake, which is no less valid, but doesn't necessarily engage with the other people around you. Yeah, the, the that's a really interesting idea and the framing of it as computational action. I do think that there's like this tendency in school at large, not just in like computer science class or whatever, but in general, most of my schooling experience was schooling for the sake of schooling. And there was like no application that had any real world benefit, both in terms of the communities I lived in or with myself as an individual to like even express myself. So it's it's nice to hear 
somebody who also like thinks schooling should be for doing something like to to improve or to better a community or to better understand a community or even oneself i really do like the that question that you asked about self-expression that really is powerful and i'll definitely think about that and incorporate that into my work and you're absolutely right that it is not at all endemic computer science education that you know the classic joke for math is when are we ever going to use this a teacher <laughs> right. stutters and doesn't know what to say because they say oh well you'll need this in the future and that's great and all but you know that is sort of the marshmallow test which is the <laughs> classic you know yeah. if you don't eat this marshmallow now you can have two marshmallows later yep and it's testing it's apparently supposed to be predictive of future success in life but apparently that's been debunked even so to expect that kind of self-regulation and patience on the part of a learner is an awful lot to expect mm -hmm. of young people of any people let alone young people we don't see that in adult education in adult learning it's very much the case that most education that happens and learning that happens outside of you know formal schooling and in the workplace is just-in-time learning or taking a course because you're starting a new role and you need to have these skills mm -hmm. so it's much more practical and yeah we don't do that for younger learners yeah which is a shame especially with the young kids like you can do so many cool things but then over time it becomes like schooling often becomes less creative uh, i think in high school and in undergrad it's more recreative and solving problems that have already been solved generally speaking mm -hmm. and it's not until the masters where you start to explore outside of that and then really in the doctorate when it's finally like okay what is something that is underexplored or not explored at all that you want to like dive into and learn more about and like head in new uncharted territories? For sure. And as a physics major, a student of math and physics, I can understand some piece of that because there's just so much that skill you have to build mm -hmm. to be able to make new contributions to the field. Yeah. It's just this huge body of understanding and skill that you can't know without a lot of development. But that said, there are ways to design educational experiences that provide some opportunity for creativity early on and don't ask you to be as, as you said, recreative. They can be more exploratory and ask you to um, discover things. They may not be new things that you're discovering but you're unearthing them because they're new to you. I'm curious, as somebody who has kind of like had some experience designing or learning, if you were like mentoring someone who was trying to create professional development or even just a learning experience, what advice might you give them given what you were just talking about? As with any creative expression, creative experience, one of the biggest things is know your audience, mm. know who you're working for. And that comes through experience of working with people and through being a good listener and through working with people getting out there don't design in a vacuum get out if possible co-design work with the people the learners and the educators who are also going to be learners early and periodically so get them in before you've designed something that is you know set in drying concrete get them in the choice of materials 
so you don't go down the road and then test it with users and realize oh i've got to scrap all of this it's not working at all listening is so important to all of education both as for learners and for people who are facilitating learning mm-hmm. yeah i unpacked a paper a keynote that was talking about how educators should really engage in radical listening and really understand not only where you are working, but who you are working with, like the individuals, the groups, the communities, etc., and the context in which you're in. I, I'm kind of curious, is there a story of a moment or a catalyst that kind of led to that recommendation? Like for myself, a lot of what I recommend for other people is because I had really bad experiences that were the opposite of what I recommend. I wouldn't say there's one experience that was like a game changer for me. There's a series of experiences that stand out for me as really good examples. I definitely had some counterexamples, but it doesn't sound like anything compared to your experience. I had some really good educators that I worked with, you know, learned from in school, in middle school and high school. And even I don't remember elementary school as much, but, you know, I remember liking the teachers and to me, liking the teachers means they know me and they understand who I am and I'm able to are able to meet me where I am. In college, I worked in the service learning center that helped match volunteers with volunteer opportunities. And it was led by a woman named Judy Curley, who was a PhD student in counseling psychology. She just taught us about how to really listen to people, Mm -hmm. active listening and building empathy with other people who are different than myself. And I think that, you know, listening and empathy go hand in hand and empathy is very, very important uh, also to education. I should, you know, also give credit to my aunt, Julie Vogel, is, you know, very skilled listener. And I call them mirrors, people that reflect ideas back to me and let me hear what I've just said without judgment, sometimes with a probing question that goes along with it. And there have been other examples of people like that in my life that you know, really have helped me hone my listening skills. It really resonates with me and what I tried to do when I was in the classroom. So my biggest motivator for getting into education was the I was I was suicidal in high school and undergrad and like the thing that kept me going was making music and like being a part of like drumline and things like that and so I wanted to help others who may be struggling through similar things and so music making was the way to do that I then like roundabout ended up in a computer science after many years but the 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 core idea of wanting kids to be able to express themselves and to kind of have a way to learn something that is meaningful to them as an individual um, was really helpful. But because that was like the the core of why I went into this, I feel like I went in really actively listening and trying to understand what students might be saying without saying something, um, whether it's like anxiety or depression or whatever, or just like, hey, they need somebody to talk to and trying to understand. I have noticed that there are some educators that I've worked with who might not have had as many mental struggles as I did. And so they were not able to necessarily know what to listen for or how to empathize with somebody who was not being overt with some of the things that they were subtly communicating and honestly probably trying to hide like I was when I was in high school. I didn't want people to know that I was suicidal. So I just looked like a really angry person and people just didn't know what was really going on in my head. I'm curious if like how you have learned to listen and empathize or how you may have seen other people 
try and do that if they don't know what to listen for initially? The idea of computational action often involves teamwork and working on a team to do something that you couldn't accomplish by yourself or that I couldn't accomplish by myself. And I noticed that you said being part of a drum line was important. Mm -hmm. And I often think of finding your people, finding your place as being a very important part of development and comfort and combating loneliness and disconnection. So I want to emphasize that it's, I think it's important very important to building group projects many reasons not you know limited to you're going to use this in the future in the business setting but just like right it's psychologically healthy to have people that you know how to work with or that you can work with and be creative together so going back to the question you asked of how I developed these listening skills and this empathy, part of it was, I mean, working with Judy in college, you know, she made us practice. Um, and she is a psychologist, so she, you know, taught us about body language and what that tells us, you know, being very attentive and, you know, this idea of reflecting back and just using wait time you know, I learned that in various places, but just being silent is and being with someone is very powerful in many ways, listening included, but also just being a human with someone else and being there non judgmentally is mm. enormously important. Uh, you mentioned suicidality. I also um, have been through, you know, suicide attempts and mental health struggles. And so I've been through years of therapy and I've learned from my therapist that, you know, some better, some worse, but, you know, that is a skill that many people in that profession have. And yeah. I think. You know, we do educational psychology for prospective teachers, which many of our listeners will know that that's, you know, educational theories, uh, Vygotsky, zone of proximal development and stuff like that. But, you know, I think it would behoove us to pay more attention to, you know, the social emotional learning of educators themselves mm. and by proxy the what they can bring to learners um, so explicitly teaching these skills. That's a, a really interesting point. I, first, I want to say thank you for your vulnerability. I appreciate that. I, I know that there are people out there who are going through or who have been through mental health struggles and feel like they're alone. And so one of the reasons why I share the struggles that I've been through is so that people know, hey, I, I, like you're not alone in this. And then two, that you can get better with it, like with therapy, et cetera. They're not a permanent thing. But I'm, I'm, to jump onto what you were just talking about, I'm, it's really interesting that SEL is often discussed in relation to students, but the way that you just framed it also talks about it in relation to teachers as well. And that is a conversation that honestly i wish we had more of as a field and it is happening in pockets here and there it was just at a conference called the systems awareness lab conference the systems awareness lab is a relatively new lab at mit led by um meta bull peter Senge, and they're the two main leads eric cloffer is also involved my friend lana cook is an important part of it and i was at the conference last week and they absolutely are thinking about we'll call it sel for lack of a better term but wellness and mindfulness for members of the educational community not just students but also educators and there are other places it's happening. Given what's, you know, the trend for the last 20 plus years has been we're losing teachers. And that's 
and the at least the last 20 years that's what i when i've been in education enough to know about it and pay attention to it it may be longer than that the last three years of the pandemic COVID pandemic have certainly accelerated the you know career changing from teaching to other places um, retirement yep. and you know the mental well-being of anybody in schools has plummeted. There's plenty of evidence to show that, research and otherwise. So the more we can do to provide people with coping tools, and I want to very much emphasize that coping tools are just that. They're coping tools. They're, they can be important in the rest of the, your life and they're crucial to have, but they're coping tools. They're not uh, fixed for the system, which in many ways has a lot of room for improvement. Yep. So we don't want to drive people to the point where they need those coping skills, but recognize that right now we have a system that does necessitate them. If you could wave a magic wand, what's something that you might be able to change in the system? So I'll go back to the systems awareness lab conference and say, we're not good at knowing what that thing or things are to change. Um, education is an amazingly complex system. Mm -hmm. And part of the definition of complex systems is that there are nonlinear, non-intuitive effects based on inputs. You know, I can say what an outcome I would like to see is, but I can't really say this is the thing I want to change to achieve that outcome. And I mean, one piece that I absolutely would change in a heartbeat is it goes to listening to students, meeting them where they're at, being real with students, learners of all kinds and people of all kinds. That, you know, their world that they live in for their lifetime is not going to be the one that I lived in. Climate change is a real thing and it's going to make life hard. And I want to acknowledge that and honor that, not brush it under the carpet. So, and there are other examples of that. And I want to support kids. You know, there's this epidemic of loneliness and disconnection and different kinds of mental health challenges that has been happening for the last 10 years, at least. At, you know, ramping up for the last 10 years before COVID. And, you know, the data is not in yet, but it's clearly accelerated since the pandemic. And so that's probably the main thing I would is, you know, just going back to social emotional learning and um, mental health support. And corollary to that is something that is a pet peeve of mine that people talk as if there's a dichotomy between social emotional learning and academic instruction and learning that if you take time for social emotional learning it's a zero sum game and you're taking time away from academic instruction and that's just not true yep there's good evidence to show and that you know more relaxed kids who are have more executive function and are comfortable with their peers and their teachers learn better they learn more and faster and are more creative and that's what we want you know it's a multiplicative thing that on the in the other direction kids who are more successful in academic instruction are more comfortable with themselves they're more proud of themselves they have more self-efficacy and that builds confidence and their social emotional skills one of the things that i'm i'm really fascinated with is thinking about how philosophies or understandings of education kind of change over time. Like my own, when I reflect on it, when I first started teaching my senior year of high school versus now, like there have been so many catalysts that led me down different paths. And I'm curious for you, how has your understanding of education kind of changed or evolved over time? Or if we want to be more specific, 
Like, what's something that you believed when you first started working in education that you no longer believe? Oh, my goodness. So, again, I look back, you know, well, over my lifetime, and, you know, it's, there are any number of pithy statements that say about the, you know, expert is the one who knows how much they don't know. And, you know, developing humility about that. And I'd say that when I started as a teacher, you know, I realized very quickly in the classroom that, wow, I don't know how to manage a classroom as a first year teacher, because that's what happens to first year teachers. Mm-hmm. And that's an aside, but we could get much better at teaching classroom management right now. Our systems are not good at that. But, you know, I thought teaching the way I had learned was the way to go. You know, I had had a few education classes. I did not have a degree in education. But even then, we know that people go through education degrees, study pedagogy, get into the classroom and take some pieces of that, but also largely um, default to the way they learned when they were in school. Mm-hmm. It's a you know self-perpetuating cycle. And that some people will then realize iterate on those pieces and change their instruction style and behavior and models of education. And I hear you asking, how has that happened for me? It's a lot of reflection being observed and having the opportunity to reflect with people who are very good at the craft of teaching. It's watching, having the chance to observe really good teachers, and it's listening to learners and, you know, realizing I've bombed that and how can i actually you know and they'll tell you either you know this is where you get at the verbal versus nonverbal and behavioral you know they'll tell you one way or the other that this didn't work for you you know some of the what we think of as quote-unquote good students may not tell you (laughs) they'll figure it out on their own and you know want to maintain the perception that they're you know, doing the right things in classrooms, but it's really the middle of the pack in the or in terms of as if it's a competition, but the kids who might be considered less good learners who you really have to watch and understand where they're at. Um, they may tell you directly if you give them a safe and permissive place to do so. Hmm. I think that's another piece of listening is that you have to make the place where you're allowing them to speak to you a safe place and you know really honor what they say not ignore you know not have them say it and then ignore it you know you can say i can't do that or i'm not going to do that but i hear you and that's okay but just say not taking any action on it is not okay I'm curious what motivates you about your work and the impact that you're trying to have on the field. Right now, the main thrust of my work is building equity and representation in high school computer science. Equity has been a part of my vocation or avocation as long as I can remember. It's something um, that really matters to me. I believe it probably comes in large part out of my being raised Jewish, but also, you know, out of my grandparents on the other side who are not Jewish, living in community with each other in a small farming community in Northeast Pennsylvania. And then on the Jewish side, you know, being only a generation or two removed from people who fled Germany and Europe um, during the Holocaust and wanting to do better, make the world a better place there's a concept of tikkun olam in Judaism that is something that I loosely translate as leaving the world a better place than I found it. 
Hmm. Ever since I was a kid, you know, kids have this known inherent sense of fairness and unfairness. And I happen to have a set of experiences where, you know, I just observed that some people don't have as fair or have a fair experience in our country and Mm -hmm. it bothered me and it continues to bother me it has for my whole life and i wanted to do something about that i volunteered throughout high school and college and most of my adult life it's been something i've wanted to be part of make part of my work life so i'm very fortunate to have that opportunity now why do i think it's important within computer science part of it is economic that part of it is power and part of it is civic responsibility so the economic and power go together that Typically, or traditionally, marginalized communities have less power and have less economic means to take power. And then civic responsibility is that, and just life in the 21st and century and beyond, means that technology is going to be done to you, mostly whether or not you like it. And the amount you can ameliorate that is directly correlated to how much you know about how technology works. And even then, you know, there are limitations. So where do you see the future of learning and education? And I do say those two as being two separate things. Where do you see us heading and how might we go to an optimistic (laughs) version of either of those? Oh, my goodness. Well, you put the um, caveat at the end of that question. (laughs) (laughs) You want me to be optimistic about it? That's harder. Um, well, we could break it down into two different things. Like, here's where I think it's yeah. going, and here's where I'd like it to go instead. <laughs> sure, and I think I will do that. Um, so let's divide it into at least three parts. Learning, I think there has been a really interesting shift in the past 25 years um, with the advent of the internet that people can learn a lot just from access to the internet, um, independent of formal education. And... I hope and think that there will be more of a movement towards sort of atomized learning um, outside of the formal educational system. Mm -hmm. I hope there will be a movement towards more project-based and situated learning, Mm -hmm. both within and without and outside of formal education. For formal education, I'm trying to be a realist. I maintain hope and optimism that it will change, but as a realist, to recognize that is a big ship and we don't know yet how to pull the levers that are going to make it change course and mm-hmm. hopefully change course fairly dramatically. People have been trying to reform education for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And it's very resistant to change as big systems are. Yeah, and I think a lot of people who are kind of like trying to navigate those waters don't really know where they're going and why. Like, I'm thinking of politicians in particular when I make a statement like that. Like, most politicians who have a profound impact on education and education policy might not have stepped foot in a classroom in decades, let alone taught in a classroom. Mm -hmm. So we... Like as educators, educational scholars, etc. Like while we have opinions and research and practice that inform where we think we might head, there are people outside of the field who are ultimately kind of like making decisions for us. Absolutely. And this goes back to the theme that's been important here of listening that, you know, you don't necessarily have to have been in a classroom, but you have to be humble about your experience and willing to listen to the people who have been in the classroom and in the schools Mm -hmm. 
And again, I'll emphasize that school systems and educational systems are very complicated, complex systems that, you know, they're thousands of different classes of actors mm-hmm. involved. There are many different contexts in which education schools happen, and there are resource disparities. There are funding models that are different from state to state and municipality to municipality. Yep. And all that says it's a big task to make change. Yeah. One of the interesting things that was new to me last week um, at this Systems Awareness Lab conference that I keep mentioning is the idea that, you know, these are systems effects. So they're affected by who knows how many variables. And we literally don't know how many variables, you know, student success is first, how do we measure student success? And then how do we know what variables actually impact student success the most? I mean, that's a really hard question. And yet, just by virtue of being human, we tend to attribute it to a person, not multiple people, maybe a class of people, but to a person. So it's that student's teacher will bear the brunt of the either success or, you know, bear the brunt of the failure or reap the rewards of the success. Similarly, for school systems, you know, the superintendent ultimately can do some things and change a lot but you know there are so many other variables and that person is still the scapegoat or the hero depending on you know perceived success of the school system and that's just not how complex systems work yeah and to actually view education and educational reform as a complex system i i think it's lordy who talks about the idea of apprenticeship of observation and when I first heard that concept and described, it made sense with how parents that I've worked with, like especially in like the marching band community, like have this like, well, this is how we did it in my day, so you should be doing it that way too. But like politicians in particular, they they may spend multiple decades going through school and seeing it be- being done in a very particular way. And so they learn what worked for them, but they did not learn what the thought processes were and the context that were influencing the teachers and the decisions that they made, why they were doing certain things, whether it was a policy or like a school mandate, administrator mandate, or just modifying to individuals. So people spend so much time observing teaching, but not understanding why and the context. And so they they walk out with this like a a puzzle that is not completed yet, but they think it is, and they don't realize that they're missing so many of the important pieces that would completely change how a teacher might approach a situation in a different context. Like, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've worked in every grade kindergarten through doctoral student in a variety of contexts, whether it was very low socioeconomic status to very high, low diversity in terms of racial diversity to high racial diversity. Like, a, a wide variety of different uh, contexts, and that has allowed me to see that one thing might work great for one class and not worked at all for a completely different class. And I don't think most people outside of education know that or understand it. I agree completely. And what you just said makes me think of ecosystems and that mm-hmm. healthy ecosystems are diverse. They have, you know, robust different soil conditions and the soil conditions and microclimates allow for a diverse set of plants, which then feed different insects, which feed different larger organisms, larger animals. You know, you can also think of, you know, ecosystems are very, are complex systems as well. And you can draw an analogy between education and ecosystems that there are different conditions 
in different places that required different solutions, different approaches. And yet, it's a again a very human thing to do. And I you know, want to respect and hold up that you know I think the vast majority of people thinking about and working on education are doing so in good faith. Yeah. You know, they want the best for students and for teachers and for the system. It's not universally true. <laughs> it's for the most part, it's true. But it's very human to want to say, particularly, you know, since Henry Ford, that there's one way we can do this and it'll work for everyone. Yep. Um, because that's simple, that's black and white. And you look too at what's the output of that going to be and that's a dystopian picture as well because if you use one approach to learning you're likely to have an output that's one approach to the world and yep. that just saps creativity and discourse and you know so much richness from the world yeah i i do genuinely fear that the broader cs discourse has been too influenced by neoliberal influences and uh, conversations uh, like making it so that one way that you could read uh, computer science discourse at large is that the entire purpose of computer science education is to get a job as a computer scientist or in somehow tangentially related to computer science and i've always been against that like written papers about it but like I, I'm really curious what your thoughts are on like generative AI in relation to that kind of discourse and just like the, the impact on education at large and beyond. Like I was speaking to one of my friends who's a professor and he was saying that at a different university, not at his, they found a student who used chat GPT to answer questions on like open response tests and they were able to like analyze and realize that it was chat GPT based off of their prior answers. So like it's going to have a profound impact on like learning as a whole, but also computer science education discourse. Like I know that was a lot, but I'm curious what your perspectives are. I've had similar, I want to say qualms, but it's more than qualms. Um, you know, disagreement with the discourse about, you know, computer science as a means to becoming a programmer and achieving economic freedom or just getting a good job. That To me, that's not an okay state of being. If there's economic power that comes with it, that's great, but that's not perhaps necessary, but not sufficient. I've seen AI programming coming for years, you know, 15 years at least, and said, you know, it's not going to be that long in whatever scale we're looking at before sort of lower level programming is done by AI bots. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, as we record this, we're in a watershed moment where ChatGPT is coming into its own and it's only going to accelerate and get better. So there I've seen been trying to follow the just flood of examples and commentary that's been happening on this as people realize, oh my God, it's here. You know, it's been coming, it's been here. And people are just realizing from this, these few examples that just how powerful things are already. Yep. I very much do think that programming is going to be different, that you're going to have to learn a different set of skills. You may not have to learn nearly as much syntax of a programming language. You may not have to learn as many programming languages. You may be able to program with just actual natural language, human natural language, and asking a computer to, hmm. you know, make an app that takes these inputs and gives these outputs. Yeah. Um, you know, make a app that calculates and routes pizza delivery trucks on the with weighted towards getting pizza there hot and using the least amount of fossil fuel possible. You know, who knows? 
But, you know, my friend Daniel Wendell, who worked at the teacher education program lab at MIT, and I used to talk about when will we get to the Star Trek level of computer power, computing power, when you say, computer, tell me how long it will take to get to planet X in the, you know, Y solar system. And, or not even, not even specifying the solar system, just planet X, and it will either know you're closest to the particular, that particular planet that has that name if there are multiple or ask you you know which one do you want to go to so we'll be context aware and we're getting there already with google assistant and things like that yeah. it's really a fantastically interesting time to be alive and watch this development you know it's scary in ways because it's changing and change is scary but you know, generative ai will open up a lot of creative ability for people who may not have, you know, the years and years of programming training that was once needed to do these things. And, yeah. you know, there will be a lot of hair programming where you team up someone who's a creative and a generative AI program and someone who's got a little bit more systems programming experience, and they will be a super powerful team. One thing that I've advocated to students that I interact with at the college level for quite some time is related to this, which is, you know, don't get a degree in just computer science unless you want to be work in theoretical computer science and be proving axioms and or writing programming languages. Instead, yeah, either uh, in one direction or another, either a double major or a minor in biology or a minor in computer science with a major in biology so that you have domain knowledge beyond just computer programming. Mm. If you want to be a programmer, arm yourself, make yourself interesting so that you can be conversant in some other domain. And I particularly believe a lot in the power of business and humanities because, you know, programmers are in some ways the well-paid worker bees of society, whereas the people who understand the humanities and history are the people who are going to really have the power and be the ones who change the way the world works and, you know, even more so armed with knowledge or technology. I have a lot to sit with and reflect on with what you're just talking about. There's, the wheels are definitely spinning. I definitely appreciate that. I'm curious, how do you recommend we might ensure that equity is infused within this future direction that involves creating alongside AI within educational contexts or just for the sake of creating? Equity is hard to ensure because the people who have the resources have the resources. Maybe the only or at least the best way to work towards equity is to really change the way we understand the humanity of the people around us. And that's a huge task. And it doesn't scale. Um, it happens person to person or person to very small community. And I think it comes by exposure to people who are different than me. Mm. So I could see, you know, some interesting things happening actually with technology and, you know, say VR here or just various kinds of interactive worlds, whether it be, you know, chat or, you know, 2D computer games or VR, where you're asked to do perspective taking that of perspectives that are not your own and realizing how much we have in common with other people. And so, mm. like, building a shared belief in equity is the first stage towards ensuring equity. And I'm not sure there's much else, you know, we can nibble around the edges otherwise, but it's going to be hard to ensure equity. And one thing, again, I'll note from the systems awareness 
Lab Conference is that what equity means is going to be interesting to watch over the next 20 years and that we will be a majority minority country if we are not already before in the very near future. So we're going to see some really interesting dynamics as, you know, white folks are not the majority in the country anymore and are trying to hold on to power. And this goes to, um, this is courtesy of Michael McAfee, who's a CEO of PolicyLink, a nonprofit that does policy and advocacy work, that the system is arranged the way it is now, which is, does not support equity, does not support equity across all sorts of dimensions, but especially equity economic and that we're seeing the beginnings of, you know, a different color of people coming into power, but we're not necessarily seeing a different model of what power means Hmm. or a more equitable system coming online. And that, you know, that will be problematic. It'll be the new king, same as the old king or queen or ruler. I I hear you, but I'm also concerned because I hear you and I looking at what I see happening in the world right now, I'm not convinced we're heading in a more equitable future. There are things that are going on that are kind of trying, some people are trying to like bring us back to segregation policies. And I think part of what's fueling that might be that we are starting to live in narrower and narrower like cones of awareness and groups of people who all think the same thing. On one hand, it's great to find people who have a shared interest with yourself. But on the other hand, if that's all you listen to, it's going to prevent that diversity of perspective and experience that I think can lead to better outcomes in terms of empathizing and understanding how not everyone thinks and behaves the way that you do and wants to live the way that you do. And so we've gotten this like rift as a country, if we think of politics, but even just like outside of politics and other areas of life, that it feels like there's a wedge being driven further so that people are less likely to kind of connect with each other. And that kind of concerns me when it comes to the equitable side of things is it seems like things are getting worse with equity in the last couple of years in particular. Yes. <laughs> I I don't think, you know, my last answer or what you said are at all at odds with each other. Yeah. Uh, I believe firmly I will stand by my answer that, you know, understanding perspective taking and, you know, the hum- common humanity is a way to build equity and probably, mm-hmm. you know, I'd posit the best way. That doesn't mean that we're doing it by any means or that we're on the cusp of doing it. Some people are working on it for sure, but will it take hold and take root? I don't know. Yeah. As I said, the powerful people are powerful. Yeah. And this may verge on conspiracy theory, but people in power benefit from this kind of division along relatively unimportant lines, right? Yeah. So, you know, if we're fighting each other about, you know, the color of our houses matching, that is, you know, that's small potatoes. That doesn't matter. You know, to my mind, climate change and building economic incentives that are in line with ameliorating the effects of climate change are the, you know, two biggest issues that we face right now. And, you know, everything else is and feel important and probably is important in some ways. But it all takes a backseat to, are we going to have a world to live in 20 years from now? Right. And yet, people with economic power want to maintain that economic power. And right. so changing incentive systems is scary to them, and they may resist or will resist. Yeah, even social power as well, not just economic. Like, there's so many different, like, layers of 
power, like thinking from like a Bardugian perspective that like people are like grasping to hold on to and maintain and whatnot. For sure. I'm curious, like uh, uh, as somebody who has uh, admitted also like uh, working through some like mental health struggles and whatnot, how do you try and take care of yourself and like prevent the burnout that can come with working in education or even specifically in equity when you're seeing some like horrible atrocities that you're trying to prevent or improve or whatever like it, it's still heavy and it can be very difficult at times to live in that space sure so i'm not always great at it you know one of my symptoms is depression and that can be exacerbated by or at least co correlated with you know observations on where the world i feel like the world is going that said, I believe in the richness of humanity and the enlivening capabilities of just shared effort and shared joy. You know, just doing things together as a team with other people is very, very important to me and contributes to my well-being. Being around other people frequently contributes to my well-being. Things like singing together. Mm. You know, just intentionally making opportunities to be joyful together, even in hard times. And, you know, I can't even pretend to understand the African-American experience, you know, the black experience in this country. But I can see the power in, you know, song and enjoy in their communities that I have to think you know, can provide some solace in hard times. Do you have any questions for myself or for the field? One big question for the field that I have is particularly around equity, but around computer science education in general, it ties back to a lot of what we've talked around economic concerns and funding, particularly for computer science education. And that specifically that we've seen a lot of funding coming from corporations. I think with a sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit desire to have more people who are capable of programming to become employees at those companies. And I see a conflict of interest there between our civic interests that's happening. These are This is happening in public schools. And public schools to me are primarily for benefiting the learners and for benefiting our society. And it's not clear to me that having private dollars teaching, you know, paying for computer science education is doing either of those things as well as we want it to be. So the question then is, what is a different, hopefully better funding model for computer science education. Yeah, I've that's something that I've been thinking about for years. I've I've spoken with other individuals within the field who have worked at like other organizations that I've never been a part of and said things like, "Well, we wanted this to be more equitable, but our funder specifically said no no to like an equity lesson or whatever." And in order to appease the funders, like the developers of like whatever it was like a curriculum or something have explicitly made things more beneficial for a company at the cost of what is best for students and teachers and society and i that's just so problematic in my opinion An another layer to consider with this that i've really been sitting with quite a bit is there's a lot of money that goes towards professional development like a district having to pay for that or even an individual but there are ways to be able to put that content out there for free on youtube and so that's something that i plan on doing over the course of the next year 
to try and help people who can't afford it or who don't want to buy into whatever it is the corporate influence that basically bought and paid for a professional development or curriculum or whatever that basically is catered to to that corporate need at whatever level, whether it is literally getting rid of equity-related conversations or um, even less uh, deviant uh, examples similar to that. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and it can be less overt, but just as insidious that, you know, producing a curriculum or professional development that claims to be focused on equity, but does a really bad job of it. Yep. And there are examples of that from prominent organizations. Yep. Yeah, it's a challenging set of issues to unpack and work on. There's another one that I really don't know. It's a hard question um, that is unique to computer science education, or in many ways unique. There's some in physics, some in chemistry. But if you're highly qualified to teach computer science, you're probably also qualified to make three times as much money programming for one of these big corporations. Yep. And there will be some people who decide to do teaching because it enriches their soul or because they believe in the social benefit or whatnot. But teaching is hard. Teaching is really hard. And yep. as we talked about, conditions for teachers are not great right now. Yep. So how do we find a way to get more well-qualified people into the classrooms teaching computer science? And while I believe firmly in organized labor, in unions, this becomes a challenge because districts, public districts, can't because of union contracts can't pay an english teacher differently from a computer science teacher for the same number of years experience and same education level as far as i know mm. you know this is a place where the supply and demand thing comes in and says you know if i can earn three times as much programming for facebook as i can teaching high school computer science you know maybe i would think about it if i could make double the money that i can currently make in high school i would think about teaching but we can't do that and as I said, I hugely value the humanities, so I don't want to, you know, I'd rather just say, okay, let's make teaching a more compelling right. profession financially. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to tackle. I don't know what that's going to look like, like 10 years from now. Like, what are the average teacher salary going to be, et cetera? And is it going to change depending on what subject you teach? I mean, there is discussion on like, should you pay different amounts depending on what degree you're trying to get? So like these conversations are happening, but whether or not something comes of it, I don't know. <laughs> are there any questions that we haven't discussed or that I haven't asked that you'd like to chat about? So this isn't so much a question that, but just something I'd love to say. I know you have an audience of educators and I just want to celebrate what teachers and educators are doing in our country and around the world. Um, it's such an important job. And there's so many people that are trying their absolute hardest in very challenging situations, and they deserve praise and celebration. I love working with teachers. It's just the highlight of my day when I get to work with teachers and run a professional development and help them become better at their job or just help them feel better about themselves and the job they're doing. So, you know, so much respect to those people. And, you know, thank you. Where might people go to connect with you and the organizations that you work with? I work at the teaching systems lab at MIT, as I said, and you can find it at tsl.mit.edu. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Josh. I know I certainly did. If you'd be so kind, please consider sharing this with somebody else, even if it's just sending a text to somebody saying, hey, you should check out this episode or sharing it on social media. It just helps more people find this podcast as well as the free computer science education resources on my website and all the drumming and gaming stuff that I share on there as well. 
Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for another episode next week. Until then, I hope you're all staying safe and are having a wonderful week.